Okay, we're gonna get started. And that's something that comes up later in the semester of where your funding source is. And one interesting thing, not just with Illinois, but with Detroit in particular. So Detroit went bankrupt, more or less. And instead of raising taxes, uh, philanthropists filled the gap. Philanthropists donated money to the city government of Detroit to make up for some of their uh, budget losses or budget deficits. So philanthropy and nonprofits a lot of times rely on the government for contracts and stuff. But if you're a nonprofit and you rely solely on the government, that could be detrimental. But then also, this is the first time ever that philanthropists came in and gave money to the city in Detroit. And other cities were looking at it saying, is that really a good model? Is that a healthy way to build a community? So there's a woman who took this class last semester. She's a harpsist. She's at the Jacobs School. She was telling me that there's only 30 orchestras in the U.S. that provide a living wage, where it can be your full-time job, and no orchestra has more than one harpsist. And she wants to be a professional harpsist. So she has 30 spots. Now, if you're a harpsist in an orchestra, you don't retire or quit, typically. So she has basically one job every three years comes open, and there's like a thousand harpsists applying for that one job. She was the one who wanted to start her own nonprofit to fund herself to like make it into the music industry. I'm sure Alice could attest to this too of uh, going into performing arts, especially in music, is a very competitive field that then doesn't pay you commensurately on the back end. And that would be an example of another like third sector example where why does the nonprofit sector exist? And so the government isn't going out of their way to protect chimpanzees or experiments on animals. In the private sector, there's no money in protecting animals. And so you need a third sector, the nonprofit sector, people who are advocates for animal rights, going in and setting up shop and doing the fundraising and doing the education and awareness to address this issue. And so maybe you don't care about animal rights, but then there's a certain segment of the population that has said, hey, listen, we need to care about the animals. And so their vehicle for doing that is by starting up a nonprofit, raising money, and doing all the things that nonprofits do. And this would be like an advocacy type organization. We're going to talk about this and your community analysis. What I'm curious to know is just for you guys, as you were putting together your mission, vision, and values, what was your experience of the process? Was it helpful? Was it like frustrating? And by the way, most of you, I was very impressed with the mission statements. As I said in the email, it's a working document. And so by the end of the semester, it's going to be like super crystallized. Most classes start way, way, way back here, like with these long, rambling, paragraph-long mission statements. But most of you started at a really solid place. There's still room for improvement, but I was impressed with the punchiness of your mission statements. A lot of times I would read the mission statement and I'd be like, it was just sort of mind-numbing in some way. So yours were in this good sweet spot of like with the next iteration or two, you will have a solid mission statement. But what was the experience just in your teams coming up with your mission and vision and values? Yeah. Like less in the team, but like I think going over like how to make a good mission statement and like taking out all of like extra words before we really delved into making our mission statement uh -huh. like in the class before oh, okay. really yeah. helped us in my group, at least, to prevent, like, from adding a bunch of words and, like, kept it really concise and, like, broad. And that seems like that class before really helped us. Uh-huh. So you were able to look at your own mission statement and see some of those extraneous words and be like, yeah, we don't need that either. Yeah. 
It's definitely kind of tough at first because I mean you want to you know you want to describe like what your organization is all about. You know, and you only have a few sentences uh -huh. to do that. You still want it to like be presentable and have good flow. Yeah. So I think it was definitely tough. Yeah, because you're like, but this is so much more than we do. Or I want to tell them about this little program we're gonna do and. But there's always space to put that stuff in. Like one that section is going to be the program proposal where you can um, elaborate more. And so this is like, it's your pitch. It's your one-liner. And if you lose them at your mission statement, they're not going to continue on. So you want to just sort of do something that sort of entices them or gives them a taste. Like, ah, oh, this sounds like a cool, you know, it's a cool organization. Any other from this side, just experiences where it's like frustrating or helpful or not what you expected? Yeah, Thomas. We didn't really have that many programs figured out in uh -huh. terms of what we wanted to do with food assistance. And so for us, it was the building blocks of the organization. So yeah. what we were throwing out was really making that organization come to life. So that was kind of interesting because like normally if you're trying to make a vision statement or a mission statement, you have a really solid idea of everything you want to do mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. organization. Yeah. That was yeah. interesting. So maybe in some ways it was good that you didn't have programs because you're just like, what's the big picture yeah. of what we want to do? Um, there's some there can be drawbacks to that because you can be like, we want to save the world. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's an ambitious organizational goal, but probably in what ways do you want to save the world? Some of you asked in the memos, can you change your mission statement? And oftentimes it's a three to five year evaluation process where you look back and say, okay, has our mission expanded? So some of you even said, well, we want to set this up in cities around the country, but it was unclear what cities. And so one idea is like, well, let's start with Indianapolis have that be the mission, and then when our organization grows, we can say, you know, cities in the Midwest, you can expand out your mission over time. But maybe it's, you know, we're going to start in Bloomington and grow from there. We're going to start in L.A. and grow from there. We're going to transition to talking about the elevator pitches, and I realize that some of you might not know what elevator pitches are. So elevator pitch, the origins of it is, say you're a young professional, you're at a conference or some meeting, and you step in the elevator, and there's another person in the elevator, and the person turns to you and says, well, what do you do? You basically have about one minute before you get to your floor to explain to that person what you do, or what product you're selling, or what organization you work for. You don't have a lot of time to go into great detail, you just have one minute to give a pitch, your best pitch of what you do. And oftentimes, doesn't happen always in an elevator, but like that can be the difference between someone saying, hey, let me give you my business card, I'd like to hear more about that, or a complete conversation stopper. And so, not just with your nonprofit, but with your life mission, what are you about? It's very valuable to have your elevator pitch, because it happens, you're at, you're at a party, you're at some event, it's inevitably gonna happen. You're at home for Thanksgiving, and your parents ask, what are you gonna do when you graduate? It'd be nice to give them a one-minute pitch for what you're going to do versus like, well, I don't know, or, you know, go off on this long 30-minute rambling and their eyes glaze over and you're kind of like, maybe I should try it a different way. So anyways, these pitches are an opportunity for you to practice this exercise of how do you condense everything that your organization is about down into one minute. The way we'll do it is we're just going to bring each team member up. So we'll start with team one and then go through to team seven. So who's doing it for team one? Cameron. You get basically one minute. 
All right, Expand the Brand basically is a nonprofit organization that aims to provide marketing services to up-and-coming artists. With the connections that we have made, we will allow them to reach a higher platform of music. And we not only focus on marketing and promotions, but we allocate much of our time to artist development. And some of our artist development services include supervising and monitoring our artists' social media sites in order to ensure that they are reaching the full potential to be engaged with their audience. We are very devoted to our artists, so we find new and innovative ways to cater to them and provide these marketing services. And we've created a new model that generates higher publicity for our artists and also gives us the opportunity to grow and produce in order to be of need and of service to these artists. We are here to help these artists get over a financial barrier in their career. Good job. Okay, team two. Who's going for team two, Joe? Our organization is called Indiana Access Opera. Indiana Access Opera seeks to enrich the lives of those who don't necessarily have access to the arts, young or old, rich or poor, Anyone that doesn't have the ability to experience the arts or the exposure to it will be helped by our nonprofit. We go into classrooms or community centers where the arts are not taught or emphasized, and we put on a showcase for them of various types of performing arts, such as opera, theater, or drama. Along with the performances, we also have an educational component of the presentation, explaining exactly what the performer is doing or how his or her singing the performance fits into a larger group. The end game being, that whoever we perform for now has an exposure to the arts and will continue on in their life valuing it and, and or becoming involved where they may not have done so before. Cool. Team three, Thomas. Hello, I'm Thomas. I'm here to represent an organization called Food Life. Food Life's mission is to provide food assistance and nutrition education those in need in the greater Detroit area. For too long, Detroit communities have suffered from high poverty rates, which have led to many of them becoming food insecure. Food deserts in and around the city prevent one in five children from not being able to access nutritious foods. And unfortunately, there are just far too many economic and social inequalities that have led to this high prevalence of food deserts in the Detroit area. But we believe that those communities have the power to better themselves by becoming healthier and more self-reliant with our guidance. And we are able to guide through programs and services that are education-based to promote personal growth and an overall understanding of sustainable food systems. And we are committed to ensuring that everyone that walks away from our organization has the confidence to work and make good decisions within that food system because a healthy life is a successful life. Team four. Hi, my name is Maddie, and I'm from Imagine Mission. And just to give a bit of background, we want to work with Middleway House, which is a local nonprofit domestic abuse shelter. And an issue that's come up when representatives of Middleway House have come to talk to us, or me and other class, is that there's a lot of guilt and anxiety present in families and women who bring their children out of these situations. And we really want to show that your time in a shelter is not you know, stunting your child's growth and it doesn't have to rob you of these 
traditional family experiences, and you want to show them that it doesn't have to be that through creating, showcasing, and preserving their child's work. So we do monthly workshops where kids can explore their talents, and then we encourage them to showcase them at our biannual events. And these biannual events are in shelter, so again, creating those positive experiences in that environment. Another part of what we do is providing mementos of their child's progress. So matting their child's work on nicer paper so it's more durable, printing out, typing up, printing out their stories. And this provides something tangible to show, you know, marking their stay at the shelter, but also it's kind of like a, a symbolic portfolio of these memories that they've created in a place that maybe they didn't think positive memories were really possible. So ultimately we envision a program that allows the families of Middleway House to view their time at the shelter as a time of growth and accomplishment through creative work. Team 5. Hi, I'm Emily with Team 5 and we specialize in international aid. So for our nonprofit, we're looking to start a series of schools that will be placed in impoverished communities with low education rates. Each school is like specific to the area we put it in. So for example, we're actually looking to start our first school in Bluefield, Nicaragua. So we'll teach like English and engineering and business and like health and environmental science, just to name a few of the subjects. And in the beginning, like we provide everything, like we provide the teachers and like the textbooks and stuff, but we have community members like shadow us and then they take over, but we stay in contact with them. And then like we believe that making each school specific to the community we put it in will be successful and give the citizens of the communities like the resources they need so they can reach their full potential. Team six. Sometimes a meaningful conversation is all it takes to inspire a new professional path. Knowing this, the Good Bar, our nonprofit, provides an environment where these conversations are possible. By connecting people seeking to improve their professional futures with mentors wanting to help, the Good Bar makes it easy for meaningful relationships to form, professional networks to be built, and for individuals feeling powerless in their careers to find their next step. Each month, the Good Bar partners with cafes and bars in Bloomington, Indiana to host Good Bar networking nights. On these evenings, possible mentors may offer to pay a premium on their purchases to subsidize the cost of mentees. By splitting the profits with the host cafe, the Good Bar remains sustainable and provides the avenue through which advice seekers become investors in their futures. And Team 7. Priya is a pre-college piano academy that takes place after school in public schools for anybody looking for it. It's for students where you create a personalized curriculum to follow the modern music trends that follow today while still learning the traditional lessons <coughs> of piano. And then for teachers, we keep their passion by teaching something that they enjoy, but then also working in group settings so that everybody's on the same page. So then through team teaching and strong collaborations, teachers create customized lesson plans as the students grow older, and then it unlocks the musician within so they never stop learning. Good job, you guys. I know that this is probably, for some of you, you're sitting there thinking, I don't want to do my elevator pitch. But it is good because at some point in your life, you're going to have to speak in front of people. And it's better to learn to do the fear stuff here with a more friendly audience. So one of the things that I think about with the elevator pitches, but more so with this whole idea of mission and vision, 
probably one of the best examples that I've seen in regards to communicating vision goes back to Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. But there's a backstory to that speech that I don't know if many of you know about it. But basically, he's giving the speech in D.C., and there's over a million people there. I mean, the speech was a fairly long speech, and it wasn't until about 18, 20 minutes into the speech that he gave the I Have a Dream section of the speech. And actually, if you watch the speech, it's kind of dry, the first 18 minutes of it. I mean, it's good stuff. It's all like, we're going to do this and this and this, and this is what we're demanding or wanting. But it's flat. What's not known, and this came out after the speech had become famous, is that there's a woman who was right near Martin Luther King Jr. when he was giving the speech, and she was sensing, like, man, we've got a million people here, and we have so much potential but it's missing something. It's missing the passion. And she yelled up to Martin Luther King Jr. and she said, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And you'll see, and I'm going to show you the clip, I'm just going to show you the portion of this, that for the first 18 minutes of the speech, we're not going to watch all 18 minutes, but you'll see that he's reading from a script. And then you'll see, at a certain point, he switches. And he stops looking at the script. And he starts speaking from his heart. And it's the point where he starts talking about the dream. And you'll see, he never, when he switches, he never looks back down at his script. And he just starts speaking from his heart. And that, to me, captures in a very powerful way when we talk about vision. Vision isn't sort of this programmatic, formulaic, like, okay, here's our vision, can be this, this, and this. It's more like painting a picture of a future reality, if our organization is successful, or if this movement is successful, here's what the future will look like. I'm going to show you that clip so you can see the difference in the very same speech, and had he not pivoted to going off script and just sharing his passion and his heart, that I have a dream speech would not be part of our historical narrative. It would just be another speech. And so I'm going to show that to just give you a sense of how that actually can be played out, and even see visually the differences. So this is where he's reading from the script. Now those who ask him to never be for civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horror of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its dream. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hill, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners, Will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream. My four little children 
One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama with this vicious racist, one day right now in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to go and handle little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I wanted to show that because it stands out to me the importance of narrative, of having a storyline as you're talking about your vision. And so our tendency, or at least my tendency, is to go into the programs and like, we're going to do this and this and this, and we miss the stories. And so if you can capture what your organization does in a story or in a narrative, you'll be able to grab people in a much more powerful way than if you just sort of say, we do all these good things, and you probably do good things, but if you can have a narrative or a compelling storyline, that will be more powerful. We're going to talk more about your statements and go over some comments just for how you can improve them. And the idea with this, when I taught this class in the past, I used to just say, hand in everything at the end of the semester. What would happen is you'd be going in a certain direction all semester and not get any feedback from me and then you'd hand it in, you'd get your grade, and that's it. So this, the way that I'm doing it, is you hand in sections along the way, and I'm going to give you tough feedback. I'm going to basically be your reviewer, and I'm not going to be friendly. It's going to be more like, here's how you can make it better. Here's how you can improve it. And so even your grades are more or less going to reflect it. You're going to be like, oh, that's, I worked hard on this. And I'll say, well, but you could have worked harder. And I'll give you sort of steps that you can take to work harder. And then at the end of the semester, you'll basically be able to resubmit everything in a more polished, fine-tuned way, sort of incorporating the comments that I give and the comments that your classmates give. And what's interesting with these partnering up with other teams, some of you did things really well and did things less well, and then your partner team did things well that you didn't do well and, and conversely didn't do well in areas that you did. So hopefully by looking at what other people did, gives you more data points of what can this look like. So I'll forewarn you that my grading on the front end is tough, but if you incorporate the comments and suggestions, you can quickly earn a higher grade at the end of the semester. And even if you want to give me stuff ahead of time, before it's due, you can send it to me and say, hey, Professor Fulton, can you give me feedback on this? And I'd be more than happy to do that. But also handing it in the first time is that opportunity to get feedback. And you could also say, oh, well, if these grades aren't going to count, then we'll just blow it off. Well, then you'll be back in the situation where you hand it in at the end of the semester and you're at the mercy of, I hope I hit the mark. So, But some of the things I saw across the groups was the need to specify your geographic scope. And that's just important to know, because as I read, I'm like, is this throughout the U.S.? Is this throughout the entire country? Or is it in the state? Or is it in a city? And it just helps, especially in your mission statement, to say the children of Detroit, or the elderly people in Bloomington, or the homeless population in Chicago. So just specify the people that you'll be serving, because if you just say people, then you're sort of embracing the entire population, and that might be virtuous, but you need some sort of focus, because like, who are you going to reach out to? So you need to specify the people and the geographic scope of your organization. And then your vision should match the scope of your mission. So if your vision is to provide instructional music 
to low-income children, and then your vision is so that we can end racism and inequality in the world, yeah, maybe your organization will contribute to that, but that vision doesn't really match the scope of your organization. So if you can say we can enhance the music interests and passions of the children of Chicago, that would be a vision that matches the scope of your mission or the scope of your organization. So don't oversell your vision of like we're going to end world poverty or you know, all these big virtuous things if your organization doesn't really fit within that. It's hard to get out of this mindset, but your vision is not what your organization does, but what the community will become. So your vision is, if our organization is successful, how will Bloomington be different? Or how will the Detroit school district be different? If you see yourself using a verb, like we're gonna provide or create, that's more mission. Vision is like what will be. This is how Bloomington will be different if our organization is successful. This is what it will look like. And then for the value statement, again, these are challenging. Some of you just put values with no description of it. So let's say the value is innovation. Okay, well, you need to contextualize it to your organization. In what ways are you going to be innovative? Or how is that related to your mission and to your organization? And the values, again, are tricky. But the best way I describe it is you have clients. Every organization has clients, people that you're serving. And so the values are if a client has an encounter with your organization, what will they experience from your organization? So will they experience compassion? Will they experience excellence? Will they experience professionalism? Will they experience resources? You know, because sometimes it's like, well, we value honesty. Honesty is a great thing, but is honesty really critical to your thing? So maybe, I think one of the groups is helping families and children involved with domestic violence. And so maybe, like, safety, is a really important value for them so that when someone walks into this program, they instantly feel safe. They go in an environment that feels safe and welcoming. But if you're doing music instruction and you say safety, well, is a student who's walking in to get music lessons, is that one of their highest priorities? Like, I don't feel safe in here. There's all these instruments. Like, it's not to say that safety is not a good value it might not be central to what your organization needs to be about. So you need to think about your organization and think, okay, if someone, if we're trying to invite people in and get people involved, so maybe for music, it's enthusiasm. Maybe some people are like, I don't want to go to piano lessons. But you want them when they walk in to just experience this enthusiasm for music. So that would fit that organization. So it isn't just these random values that are good values, but it's like, what are the values of your organization that would really help you accomplish your mission? So what we're going to do is we're going to break up into your teams to provide peer feedback. And so hopefully you've read each other's mission, vision, and value statements. The idea is we're going to start with team one, we'll talk to team two, and we're going to spend like five minutes just sort of giving feedback. And then we'll flip where team two will talk to team one. And since there's an odd number of teams, I'm going to talk with team four. So each time we do this, I'll break off with one of the groups to give more focused feedback. And so as you break up your groups, here's the three questions I want you to respond to. What did you like about the team's statements? What things were unclear or confusing? And what could be improved? So break up and you'll have five minutes to do that. Okay, well, we'll go to community analysis. Some general comments that I have. Provide information about your community that is directly relevant to your organization and the population it serves. So 
if you're doing children and education, talk about the schools, talk about other tutoring organizations that are out there, and the demographics are related to your organization, not just, hey, there's a thousand neighborhoods in Bloomington or something like that. Don't do stuff that's irrelevant to it. And then this is important. This will be throughout all of your writings. If you are going to provide a statistic that sounds impressive, set it up or use it to make a point. Because some of you were just throwing out statistics and it's like, why is this statistic important or how does it relate? Provide context for it and say why you're stating this statistic. If you make a claim or provide a statistic, provide a link to evidence that supports your claim or gives the source of the information. And so this is important, and I do it a little bit different than maybe what other classes do. Other classes would say, give me a bibliography, which is the right traditional way to do it if you're going into academic research. But most of you aren't going into academic research, you're going into the private sector or industry. When I work in the private sector or in industry, bibliographies aren't the way you do things. The way you do things is you provide links to the source. So if you provided some statistic, and I'm reading I'm like, is that true? Like there's something within me, a gut reaction, like I don't think that's true. I want to be able to click on the source of that information. You give me the link, and I just click on it, and you show me the website, I'm like, wow, I never knew that. Before that, would you put like the link within the body of work, or at the bottom be like, No, in fact, the best way to do it, I think, is embed it within the word. So does anyone not know how to do that? Your team does, so they can teach you. So the, the idea is, and this isn't just my peculiarities, but it's like in the professional world, if you're submitting a proposal, if you're making these claims or providing statistics, the person reading it might question it. And so if you can just provide a link, you can instantly demonstrate your professionalism and credibility by having that link. And I guarantee that person, if they're questioning it, they'll click on that link, and if it's a credible source, then they'll be like, oh wow, I never knew that. Wow, these people are on it. You know, they're providing good information. Now if your link is to Wikipedia, then I'll go to that and I'll be like, this isn't a reliable source. I want some hard data. So if you have a link to the US Census or you have a link to some other research, it's just a better way to do things, not only for this class, but anytime you submit some type of proposal or information. So we're not going to do the providing feedback to the groups because I want to have time for the board stuff because some of you had questions in the memos. In terms of board responsibilities, the three that came out that you guys had questions on, which I get because they're horrible terms like care, loyalty, and those are like those values that are like big pictures that don't mean much. So I'm going to try and break it down, but the duty of care represents the board members serving as the parents of the organization. Just think about parents of a household. They're caring for the organization. They're not necessarily running it, the day-to-day, -day, everything going on, but they're making sure that the organization is well-fed, has the resources, has the supports in place that are needed. And so part of that is the finances, the management, make sure that it's a smooth-running operation. And if there are problems, the board, in a sense, the staff would go to the board and say, hey, this isn't working well, we have a problem. So when you think of duty of care, think of parents and they're making sure that the organization is run well. In terms of duty of loyalty, as a board member, I need to be loyal to this organization because I'm in a position of serving this organization, I need to be putting the interests of the organization first. And so as Professor Gaisley talked about, like there's one board member who is the owner of a bank and the organization needed to get a loan. And so the board member has to sit there and think, okay, listen, 
I have competing interests here. Like I want my bank to be successful, but as a board member, my loyalty is first and foremost in this context to the organization. And so I need to separate myself out wanting to benefit my business or whatever personal benefit you could have from it. So it's the idea of like my foremost primary loyalty is to this organization, not to my own personal interests. And, and so that's where this whole idea of conflict of interest comes up, and you'll write about this in your board proposal. Conflict of interest is not conflict on the board. Conflict of interest is a competing interest between a board member's personal interest and the interest of the organization. So there's a conflict of interest. And so there's different ways to address that. Sometimes the extreme case is the board member says, hey, I can't be a part of the board anymore. Like in the case study of the woman with uh, the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco, she was kicked out. But basically there's this conflict of interest because she was too intertwined in all the activities of the organization. But other things are just refusing yourself from a certain decision. So if someone's applying to a position and it's a family member, you just say, I'm going to recuse myself from this interviewing process. It's because of this duty of loyalty that your primary loyalty is to the organization, to the success of the organization versus your personal interest. And then the last one is duty of obedience. And again, the best way to think about this is obeying the law. You're held responsible to make sure the organization obeys the law. So there's IRS laws, there's government regulations that the organization is bound to. So the board member needs to make sure that the organization obeys the law. And the second part of obedience is being faithful to the mission or charter. So oftentimes when a nonprofit is start up, it has a mission or it even has a charter that says, we're going to do this. And you need to hold the organization to being consistent with their mission. And sometimes that's challenging. Like you think of some private universities. So Brown University is a good example. In its charter, and I don't know exactly why, it's not allowed to have a business school for whatever reason. So if you want to go get an MBA at Brown University, you can't because they don't have a business school. And so the board of trustees always wrestle with this of like, it would really help us in the marketplace of universities if we had a business school. Brown has a good brand identity and if we had a business school, we could recruit a lot of people. But the original founders of the university said, no business board. I think it's because of capitalism or something like that. And so the board members, in a sense, are bound to uphold the charter. Or if, you know, in some radical way, they all collectively decide we need to change this charter, then they do that. But that's where obedience comes in. We talked about recruiting board members. That's one of the things you're going to have to write about. So with recruiting board members, there's two things. It's who to recruit and how to recruit them. And you're gonna to have to make a decision on this. So options are, you know, friends of current board members. So you're on the board and you're like, well, who's gonna be the next generation of board members? Well, let's look at our network of friends and bring our friends on board. Another option is wealthy people. Let's find the wealthiest people in the community because if I'm part of the Fort Worth Orchestra, we're under-resourced, it'd be very beneficial for us to have wealthy people on the board so that we can increase our revenue. Graduates of your program, so let's see if some of you do, let's say it's the, you're doing the good part. It would be former mentees who'd be board members. They've gone through the program, and so they've experienced it firsthand. They could be a potential board member. Or program volunteers, like the mentors could be, or like the people who are doing volunteering at the Middleway House could be a potential board member, people who are vested in the program. And then the second part is how to recruit or select them. And so 
there's three different ways to do this, and the default tendency is doing an open call. Let's just say whoever, you know, who wants to be a board member? We're starting this organization, who wants to be a board member? What could be some potential drawbacks to having an open call? Yeah. You possibly get someone that doesn't really care about the organization, they're just kind of doing it kind of like a resume builder. Yeah, I want to be a board member. Like, you're asking me if I want, okay, sure, sign me up without even knowing what the organization is doing or necessarily even caring about it. Like, the tendency is, well, let's just see who's interested, but then you would get a whole bunch of people, and then you're in this awkward space of like, well, we kind of wanted a certain type, and so thank you, but no thank you, and it's just awkward. So generally, the open call, I can't think of any time where that's a good strategy because you have no control over who's going to respond to it. But because you made an open invitation, then you have to show them respect, you have to respond to them, explain to them. And a more preferred way is like this targeted invitation of simply saying, we want wealthy people, and so we've identified five people that we would like to pursue in being a potential board member. And so you go to those five people and do a proposal or invite them to consider being a board member. Or if it's program volunteers or alumni. And then another one is nominations and elections. So that's besides the open call, is as you have your annual meeting or whatever, saying we need to get a new set of board members, is there anyone that you'd like to nominate to be a board member? So it's within the organization, people are saying, hey, you know, Emily has been a great servant in the organization, and she is actually an alumni of this program, so I nominate Emily to be a board member, and it's like, Emily, do you accept the nomination? And then eventually you have elections, the more organic, internal within. So as you guys are putting together your nonprofit board proposal, this is the last thing you're going to look at, is this just gives you a sense of, as you're thinking about your proposal, gives you a scheme for how to put together your proposal, but the types of people that you want on your board, how are you going to select and recruit them, and then what is your board member's responsibilities going to be, and for each of these, provide a justification. So the board for the Indiana Opera is going to have different composition for different reasons, it's going to have different responsibilities for reasons that would be different from like the Middleway House program. So you need to say the reason why we want to have this type of board is because of this. And we don't have time for the case study, but if you have any questions about the board or even your other previous stuff, you can come and ask me.